I'm Elizabeth Rushing, and this is Humanity in War, an ICRC podcast on all things humanitarian law and policy. Welcome back to Humanity in War. I am thrilled today to be joined by two incredibly inspiring women. Uh, first, we're being rejoined today by our dear Helen Durham, who's the International Law and Policy Director here at ICRC, and in the very final days of, of her mandate here with us. Thank you for joining us, Helen. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, and I'm just delighted with our other guests to have a moment with, uh, with her. But uh, thanks for having me back again, your gluttons for punishment. <laughs> I think we're trying to just get every last drop of Helen wisdom before you're off to the beaches of Australia. So thank you for joining us. And as you rightly flagged, we have a second guest today. We're joined today with Fanula Ni Aloin, and she is among a very long list of accolades and accomplishments, currently serving as the UN Special Rapporteur on Counterterrorism and Human Rights. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing, Fanula? I'm good. It's early morning where I am in the middle of the United States, but really glad to be in this conversation, especially with my friend Helen, who's heading off to Australia. So I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. And thank you for joining us in the early hours. Well, and so the reason that we came and tried to convene this conversation today is really that we at the ICRC, we have a report coming up uh, and it will be focusing on the gendered impacts of armed conflict and the implications of those impacts on the application of international humanitarian law. And so I'd really like to dive right into that conversation because I know that you both have so much to say on this and so much experience to uh, provide and feed into that reflection. So let's start with what you're working on now uh, currently. Both of you have been leading new research and reflection on the interaction between gender and international humanitarian law. Can you tell us a little bit more about your recent focus and why you're focusing on that right now? Helen, can I start with you, please? Of course. So thanks, Lizzie, for the question. I think it's really wonderful to get a moment in, in space and time to talk about these critical issues as they relate to gender. It's not a sidebar, it's part of the main course, so to speak. So perhaps I'll take a moment <clears throat> introducing the ICRC's work stream on IHL and the gendered impacts of armed conflict. And in many ways, what you can expect to see in our new report, which I'm excited to say will be out later this month. Now, for those listening, the erudite audience we have, you all know that international humanitarian law, IHL, requires parties to an armed conflict to really assess and take steps to reduce the expected civilian harm. Um, and that's part of the, the key obligations found in this normative framework. Now, when you set this obligation against the reality that gender, of course, shapes an individual's experience of armed conflict in often a dramatic way, it, it makes clear sense that we need to take a gendered view of IHL. Now, what this really means in essence is that a gender perspective is a very relevant tool for practitioners who are seeking to understand and reduce civilian harm in times of armed conflict. So the expected civilian harm is more likely to be, one would say, accurately assessed by militaries and other decision makers if it's considered from a gendered perspective. So. As part of our mandate as an institution, ICRC's role in working towards the application and faithful understanding of IHL. In 2021, the ICRC convened a expert workshop 
because we need to learn much more in this space. We need to catch up in many ways. So this expert workshop brought together those who had uh, a depth of knowledge to scope out the gendered impacts of armed conflict and to try and identify potential implications for IHL obligations as it relates to, once again, the protection of civilians. But also we also need to take into account the combatants, um, female prisoners of war and other issues, as well as male prisoners wards. Gender obviously applies to all. So within this expert, we wanted to engage in really a critical reflection on the role of IHL in addressing these impacts. So our new report will really um, aim to contribute to the legal discourse one would say, on gender and IHL from an ICRC perspective um, and informed by the expert discussion and ultimately contribute to reduction. We are hopeful. All our work is to reduce gendered harm and our, our aim is always to be practical reduction of harm during times of armed conflict and this way is the gendered harm. So I think you also asked, Lizzie, before we pass it over, the why now? And I think that's a, that is a critical point because obviously, I mean, there's been a, a really important discourse around the critical element of understanding gender for a number of decades in international law. And what, why now? Why has the ICRC come to this point now? And if I may summarise, there's three real reasons. The first one is humanitarian. The second one, I think, relates to us as an institution. And the third, if I may say so, in my last few weeks, is a personal one. Um, so if we start with the humanitarian, it's it's very depressing, if I may say so. After all the work done, after the articulations of a guarantee of equal rights for women and men in international law, that there's no doubt from the conflicts we witness today that women and girls continue to have inequality in every country worldwide and in humanitarian settings and I've always said armed conflict exacerbates pre-existing inequalities that you find in society it exacerbates them and this is particularly grim when it looks when we look at the humanitarian situation today so it's it's depressing in the sense that we work so hard but we're going further so just quickly we know that over 21% of primary school aged girls are out of school compared to 15% of boys. We know that there's a, a large percentage of female headed households and they face higher risk of malnutrition and food insecurity. And we know that, for example, there's 20% less uh, likely of women to be paid in work in countries experienced protracted conflict. So we've got all those factors. So I think from a humanitarian perspective, we must act and we must act now and as we, you know, we can't be slow in that space. Secondly, institutionally, the ICRC has been updating its approach, whether it be listening to the those we serve more, so the you know accountability to affected population, but also looking at issues such as gender. And we need this report to go alongside the other work we're doing, such as updating the commentaries to the Geneva Conventions. And finally, from a personal point of view, my experience as a young lawyer, I worked very hard on issues such as clarifying of uh, sexual violence as a war crime. Uh, I've very often as a delegate visited women in places of detention and I've really seen the need for the ICRC as an institution to work in that area. So that's what we're doing and that's why we're doing it now. I appreciate that. And I like that you kind of flipped the script on that question. So it's why now? It's like, when would you ever not? focus on this. In the work that we're doing, if we're focusing on a situation or a context of armed conflict or other situations of violence, that's precisely when, as you say, these pre-existing vulnerabilities or inequalities, the armed conflict is the fuel on that flame. So it's not why now, it's when would you not focus on this as an issue. Exactly. We're in 2022. It's essential. We have the evidence before us. We know the impact. We need to celebrate the advances and be really proud and strong about that. But we also need to work harder and think more deeply. Thank you. 
Thank you, Helen. So turning uh, to you, Fanula, I know that you've been leading some research at the Geneva Academy on gender and occupation law. Can you enlighten us to, as to some of the findings from that work? Sure. And I just wanted to say I was uh, really honored to be a part of the ICRC's expert meeting when it took place uh, that Helen's just spoken about. And I think it's also just quite, we take for granted that we have expert meetings. It was actually really rare to have an expert meeting where the room was primarily full of women, IHL experts, and, and men too, but really bringing the collective knowledge that we have to bear so that the kind of policy pieces of this in, in, in real life terms change the uh, protection of, of civilians and women in particular on the ground. And for me personally, I, I grew up in a conflict, uh, conflict site. I grew up in Belfast, Northern Ireland, so conflict has both professionally and personally weaved its way through the entirety of my own uh, biography, I suppose. Uh, for me, my interest in the law of occupation grew as I took one of my earliest positions as a law professor living in Jerusalem, teaching at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And living in East Jerusalem and in a sense sort of being a daily observer and in some ways participant by simply living in that space in a situation of belligerent occupation made me understand in a way what I was teaching theoretically in the classroom and what I was observing on the ground that there was this enormous gap, particularly as I observed the role of women in an occupation. Um, an interesting point being that often by virtue of the realities of occupation and its impact, gendered impact on men's lives uh, through imprisonment or the dangers uh, that men faced because of their gender in public spaces, women often became the frontliners of engagement with the belligerent authorities, as it were, as the, with the military commander, with the infrastructure of military uh, presence in a situation of engagement. And I was really struck by the ways in which the law of occupation, as they were conceived of in the Four Geneva Convention, women were largely invisible. They sit, of course, in the category of civilian, but the particular experiences of women under occupation, I think, were largely missing from uh, the conceptualization of those who wrote the four conventions and the additional protocols. And so the book I'm writing is really trying to um, address both a theoretical gap about what does it mean for a woman's life to be lived under belligerent occupation, particularly when we think about the life cycle now, if we think of the most, the transformative occupation of Israel-Palestine, women my age have actually grown up their entire lives. They were girls, teenagers, young women, mothers, grandmothers through occupation. So what does the life cycle of a woman look like and feel as a regulatory matter lived under occupation? And, and so the, the book really wants to think through some of those sort of theoretical questions. I also really wanted to think about, this is Adam Roberts' phase, transformative occupation, but transformation for whom, right? How does that, what does that mean when you think of a gendered understanding of what is a transformative occupation? And then also just to really focus attention on the kinds of harms that women experience. I think there's been enormous attention, as Helen said, to sexual violence in occupation. And certainly we have historic occupations. You could think of, for example, the German, uh, the occupation of East Germany during at the end of the Second World War by Russian forces. And we have quite a lot of evidence around what kinds of ranges of sexual harms took place during that period. 
Um, contemporary occupations, I think what's, what's interesting is that some of them are not defined by that classic sustained formal sexual violation that has come to define the gaze of international law on conflict, but nonetheless are extraordinarily harmful to women. And so it's really thinking through what is the anatomy of harm for women, not just through the gaze of sexual violence, which is obviously really important, but thinking of what in my own work I call everyday harms for women. And maybe I'll close by giving one example, which is that in the transformative occupation that the book is particularly focused on, Israel-Palestine, women's most significant challenge is often movement, moving from place to place, moving with children, moving to hospitals, moving to sites of education, going to see family members. That often happens through checkpoints, through points of engagement with the uh, military authorities. And what does it mean for a woman? What kinds of harms are experiences through the intimacies of movement? International humanitarian law hasn't historically concerned itself with movement. That has been actually the preoccupation of human rights law. And yet in situations of occupations, it's actually movement that often defines a person's interface with the convening military authority. And so it's those kinds of questions that the book I'm writing really tries to tease out. Lizzie, may I just add in there, it's just so um, important, and I think it was be- you've just beautifully articulated this, that to move the, the gaze away from it just being located around sexual violence and to move more broadly into the wider view. So thank you for, for, um, for the work that you've done on that point. I think we've sort of taken it almost in a sequenced way at an international global level where there's been a lot of focus and there needed to be on clarifying issues around sexual violence, but the experiences, as you so beautifully put, are so much wider. I just wanted to actually make a note if you have a working title of this book so that I could be on the lookout for it, Vanula. It's called The Gender of Occupation. The Gender of Occupation. Okay, excellent. And I love how you describe it and just from all of the different angles that we should be looking at this. You know, sometimes we talk about gender as a lens, using a lens of gender, but how you're describing it, it feels lens sounds really two-dimensional and it's almost more of a prism, you know, from uh, having women at the table as policymakers or in these positions of, of power to shape the laws, having them in the doctrine or in the law itself, and also understanding uh, what impacts or harm that, that, these are, that these are coming about. So I always use the word lens, but it's more complex than that. Uh, and so I really appreciate you uh, laying that out. So with this in mind of the why are we focusing on this now uh, and what you're focusing on at the moment, I'm going to ask a question that I'm sure that you get quite a lot, but I really believe that it bears repeating hearing the answer to this. Uh, why are we focusing on women and girls when gender affects everyone uh, in one way or another? Or the gendered impacts of armed conflict uh, do affect everyone. Why are we focusing on women and girls? Sure. I mean, I think that's a, f- uh, a, a profound question. And I do find myself tripped up at times because, of course, there is a massive amount of impact from a gender perspective on, on boys and men. I mean, men are, 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 are in many cases forced to get involved in conflict. Boys are taken and, and conscripted. Uh, when we look at who goes missing, it's the men. So I think obviously armed conflict affects everyone and there is a lot of terrible impact upon uh, men, boys, as well as women and girls. Um, and also let's take into account people of diverse sexual orientation and gender identity. So you're right, we have to constantly remind ourselves and keep clear-eyed about the fact that gender is is wider. Um, and I think it 
gone are the days that gender is just associated with vulnerable women because I also think when you flip that, women have a lot of agency and we need to lean into that too. But that's a whole other podcast for the future. So yes, um, it affects all. Uh, and I think sexual violence perpetrated against men and boys is often underspoken about despite the fact that women and girls uh, have the, I would say, the, the vast majority of experience of sexual violence, we know that uh, boys and men experience sexual violence, particularly in places of detention. So we must constantly put pressure on ourselves to look at the wider um, framework of the harm suffered during times of armed conflict. But Lizzie, let me just maybe clarify two things up front. First, at ICRC, we really clearly understand that sex and gender are two distinct concepts and of course for us sex is biologically determined whereas gender is socially constructed and you know it is very complicated at times over the years as an institution which has to be neutral uh, our role is not to try and transform society. We're not a development organisation. We're an emergency to make sure, once again, we, we look at um, this issue of gender through the prism of impartiality, the need to have a gender lens to really look at the real needs, but not to be part of the transformative agenda as a, as a front. So we understand that distinction. Secondly, we refer to diverse women, men, boys and girls, and this reference to diversity really acknowledges that gender is only one person's factor in their identity and their position in society. It has to interact, as we all know, with other diverse factors, including age, potential disability, ethnicity, religion, nationality, migrant status, class, health, caste, sexual orientation. There's a mass of them. And, and personally, a lot of people um, uh, asked me questions when I was became the first uh, female director of international law and policy for the ICRC in its 160 years. Uh, a lot of questions were about the fact that I was, I was a woman in the role. But in fact, being an Australian, sort of the intersectionality of that was, was a, an issue too. So I think we have to look uh, both at wider. So ICRC's approach um, to inclusive programming and how it takes into account the diversity of individuals is set out in our framework around accountability to affected people, institutional framework. And if people are interested, and maybe Lizzie, you could put in a quick um, link to that if they're online. So with this said... Uh, let me come back, though, and say that our new report does primarily, in the most case, focus not exclusively but has a strong focus on the gendered impact of armed conflict on women and girls specifically because we felt that was a voice and experience that needed surfacing. So the rationale for this focus is also that the global context for gender inequality and discrimination against women um, is still strong, as I mentioned before. In no country have we seen um, achievement of full gender parity uh, according to the annual global gender gap. And women and girls continue to confront a range of barriers of discrimination. And as I mentioned before, armed conflict exacerbates these inequalities. So in, in conclusion on this question, I, I think there's no doubt that the application of a gender perspective to international humanitarian law uh, requires both the purpose of uncovering gendered harm against all persons so we can address these gender inequalities, but we're taking a starting step with a little stronger focus on women and girls. Thank you very much for that, Helen, and for, for laying the foundation uh, to answer that that question properly. And, and now to, to you, Fanula, your work as Special Rapporteur has really provided a spotlight on how gender-based discrimination has affected boys specifically in Northeast Syria. Could you tell us a little bit about how gender has operated as a system that shapes the formulation of the laws there and how this understanding helps us address gendered harm today? 
So I think that's right, Lizzie. The mandate I hold has been particularly focused more broadly on the situation in Northeast Syria, the ongoing and undulating um, both humanitarian crisis in Northeast Syria, as well as really serious, sustained and systematic breaches of international law, including international humanitarian law and human rights law uh, since the fall of the caliphate and before in terms of the scale of human rights violations which took place there. And I will say that my, if you want, preoccupation with the boy child in Northeast Syria really is linked to a broader observation that a number of scholars and practitioners have made about the, in a way, the erasure of the status of civilian for the boy child in so many places of conflict. Meaning by virtue of a boy's gender as male, he is a presumed combatant in multiple places from Yemen to Libya to Northeast Syria and never seen primarily as a child so that his sex determines the degree of protection that he will get. And I'm the mother of boys. And so in some ways, this is both extraordinarily kind of visible to me as an international lawyer, but extraordinarily personal when I look at my own boys. And I imagine what it would be like for them by virtue of their gender to be seen as, as targets or non-child. And there's an extraordinary Palestinian feminist, Nadira Shaloub Kevorkian, who talks about, she's written a wonderful book called Unchilding, which is a, an understanding of how we make some children non-child. And by making them non-child, we strip them of the entitlements they have under law. And so that really intellectually for me has been the starting point of, our, of the mandates engagement in Northeast Syria. It states the obvious that we have a massive systemic problem of arbitrary mass detention, in particularly in two camps, Al-Hol and Al-Raj, and a refusal by many states, mostly uh, third country states, a failure to bring back their children, including their boy children, because they have made the determination in part that those children are not children anymore. We also see a stripping of status from those children through citizenship stripping mechanisms by uh, stripping their mothers of nationality and then de facto stripping the boys of their nationality so they have no gateway to the rights to which they are entitled to. We've also seen what I've been particularly concerned about is what I have described as the arbitrary culling of boys from their mother. So at age 10 or 11, approximately, in the camps in northeast Syria, Al-Hol and Raj, we, um, the mandate, has observed and documented the practice of taking boys into places of detention based on their sex. And again, if, if this were happening to girls, I always say this, if we were taking girls out of camps and putting them into places of mass detention with, as Helen's already said, these you know, further dangers and exploitations to sexual violence, to other kinds of harms, there would be extraordinary outcry, it seems to me. And it is the fact of the boy's gender that actually sort of dehumanizes them. So um, this has been, I'll close by saying, this has been particularly revealed by the attack that took place in January al Hasaka prison in northeast Syria, in which up to 700 plus boys were held, arbitrarily held, again, uh, because of their sex. There's been no legal process to determine that those boys should be in prison. Many of them had been held with adults, all entirely being treated in ways that the mandate I hold has found to breach the international law prohibition on torture and human and degrading treatment. And so I think, again, 
this focus on boys has been really to lift up the boy child, to recognize that the child, the boy child is entitled to protection under law, both from uh, international humanitarian law and intersectingly from international human rights law. And our failure to see the boy child as child, to me, is one of the fundamental failures of protection that we've seen in the last uh, couple of decades in situations of armed conflict. Thank you for sharing that uh, quite heartbreaking findings that you have and for your work on shining light on that situation. It's, it's true. There's often a trend of seeing boys as inherently a threat and girls as inherently a victim. And I think it's not only a false dichotomy, but it certainly hurts both groups. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. Back to you, Helen, and back to the, the upcoming report that our team is working so hard to finalize as we speak. I'd like to talk a little bit about the, the obligations relating to conduct of hostilities particularly, because we are talking about these different domains of, of the gendered impacts. Could you give a little sneak peek uh, to our listeners of the key takeaways on the report uh, to this end? Absolutely. And also thank you uh, as, as well for, for the chilling and sober reminder of the, the boy child. So thank you. Um, I, add, I add my thanks to Lizzie. So it's, it's really important to bring this into the discussions. Um, so coming back to the report, I, I think you will find that one of the key or at least overarching findings that the report will express is that incorporating a gendered perspective into the application and interpretation of ITIL rules is really a building block for progression towards the alleviation of gendered harm wrought by armed conflict. So if I may, Lizzie, just break that down with an example, say, let's take the obligation under ITIL of constant care, a really important obligation uh, that is often um, not, not used enough. So I'm glad to shine a gender, gender lens on this. So this general obligation supplements, adds on to the basic rule of distinction, and it requires that in the conduct of military operations, and it's articulated in Article 57.1 of AP1, that in the conduct of military operations, constant care should be given to spare the civilian population, including civilians and civilian objects. Now, this obligation of constant care is an obligation of conduct, and its aim, obviously, is to mitigate risk and prevent harm. And it applies consistently, both in the planning and the execution of any military operation. So it's got a temporal dimension. Now, an application of a gendered lens, one would say, to the collection of information during such an operating planning could include, for example, whether troop location, including at checkpoints and through patrols, exposes women, girls, but also men and boys, to new risks, not limited to, but also including sexual violence. It also could include whether certain medical services are more accessible or more important and more available to to women or men. Um, for often we see the, the lack of appropriate medical uh, facilities provided to women, whether it be for maternity services or other issues. Um, other things that could be factored in if you take a gendered lens include patterns of life around key civilian infrastructure, markets, shopping hubs, places of water collection, schools, um, civilian objects, often have a very gendered dimension uh, and, and that, we, that we need to unpack and certainly the military um, and those using force in their planning. You could also look at 
for example, whether women have less access to vehicles in situations where civilians are expected to flee. And we're also doing a lot of work, if I may say so, in this area, looking at uh, persons with disabilities. What is their capacity to, to flee if you, if you do get the chance to remove yourself from situations of harm? So in many contexts, for example, where we work, women can't drive. They're not taught to drive or they're not allowed to drive. What is the gendered impact of that? And finally, I think some of the issues is to look at whether women and girls have a lower literacy rate or access to digital technologies or are typically less present outside the home in contexts where advanced warnings may be issued. So even if the military or a pre and attack is providing some warnings, what what are the implications if it's done through a masculine paradigm and assumes the same access to information? So there's some examples um, that I think where we're really trying to bring, uh, as you uh, as as has been expressed previously, a sense of the theory to the practice. So in more generally, and just to finish, we have two key takeaways. Um, one is that gender inequalities in contexts where the conduct of hostility we see takes place are a factor that influence civilian harm. So it's not academic, we, we know it's a factor that influences harm. So we would really, as an institution, urge for and welcome further research on this to understand the patterns of gender harm that occurred. So we ask for any researchers, anyone thinking about doing a PhD that's listening, uh, please reflect on how you could, could support in this way. Another key issue is that gendered biases can really affect how IGEL principles of distinction, proportionality and precautions are applied and training for armed forces personnel with decision-making responsibilities really need to, to, to be aware of this. Third, as practitioner tools, um, we would flag that parties to, to a conflict um, really should in integrate gendered analysis into the planning of military operations. Um, appoint gender advisors to, in positions that can influence the military operations. Integrate questions of assessment of civilian harm during the planning. And ask questions such as how do women, girls, men and boys of different ages and different abilities use or rely on the spaces we're looking at. Um, and then, of course, monitoring and tracking and reporting. We need more evidence, um, uh, especially disaggregated evidence of civilian casualty and data. So as you can see, Lizzie, uh, there's a lot, uh, a lot for ITIL practitioners to really practically work on in order to get a better grip of the gendered impacts of armed conflict. Thank you, and that is indeed practical. Those are very concrete ways uh, to implement real effect and real change. Uh, so I hope our listeners agreed that that only piqued the curiosity uh, to read the contents of the report. Uh, Fanula, can I ask you the same? You, you've gone into uh, some detail on, on your past research um, on occupation law. Are there any key takeaways uh, from your report that you would like to share with our listeners today? Yeah, no, I mean, I have to finish this point. My project at the Geneva Academy is to finish this project. So I'm, I'm really working towards that. But I think there's a couple of key takeaways. The first is, I think, is in a way Helen has said, and it's, it sort of borrows a phrase from a, another famous feminist, which is surfacing gender, like actually seeing how gender emerges in different ways, whether it's through making visible the specific harms to women and girls, whether it's, for example, understanding the masculinities of occupation, because occupation spaces are highly masculine spaces. 
in which you have different kinds of masculinities in flux and you have masculinities in tension with one another. You only have to stand, to use Helen's checkpoint analogy, you only have to stand at a checkpoint outside of East Jerusalem and see when you see men filing through a checkpoint manned by other men or young Israeli women with guns, you can understand that this is a place of, of both hyper uh, and subordinate masculinities and the implications of that. So the first is really seeing gender, being open to it and understanding um, even, um, and I think in particular, seeing it in the ordinary lived experience of conflict not just in these exceptionalities of conflict around sexual violence, which are really important, but actually the more insidious gender work is done, kind of everyday lived experience of gender in conflict. And the second thing I would say, and, and this is really another project that the ICRC is running that I do want to give a shout out to, which is the um, review of the commentaries on the Geneva on the four Geneva Conventions, and in particular the importance of the review of the Fourth Convention, which I think is from a normative doctrinal perspective, understanding how those rules would be shaped and should be understood today in situations of occupation, whether it's Cyprus, whether it's Israel-Palestine, whether it's Western Sahara, we have to really understand how we reinterpret as lawyers and, and practitioners, how those rules have to be uh, made fit for purpose in the lived reality of occupation today. And I think the third is this goes to harms, which is when we reveal harms, then we have to think about remedies. What does it mean to have remedies in armed conflict? And, I, 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 and in particular, the relationship between conflict and post-conflict spaces around the kind of the work that has to be done during conflict, including occupation, in order to ensure remedy for serious violations of international law. And again, what my, my book, I think, hopes to surface is particularly in long-term protracted occupations where we've grown a little tired of them, frankly, where our attention to the harms that are occurring is low, where new conflicts overtake the imagination that is given by the public to any particular conversation, uh, conflict uh, context, really understanding the ongoing necessity of uh, accountability for violations that have taken place during situations of occupation. So let me stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you both for that uh, sneak peek. Uh, I think that you really both struck the exact right balance on uh, intriguing the listener to go out and, and read the, the reports uh, respectively, but without giving away too much <laughs> so that they'll actually go out and, and read the small print as well. Um, and thank you for your time today. I did just want to ask one more question that I ask all of my listeners. So Helen's already heard it, uh, but it's just, what are you reading right now? Uh, people really like to know what's on your bedside table. And Helen, last time I spoke with you, it was a book of poetry, I think by Emily Dickinson, or is that what was being held for your uh, upcoming vacation? Or have you already dived into that? No, I, 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 the thing, the great thing is when we're reading big, big reports is to be able to have something that you can either, for me, dive into here and there. So I, I still have occasionally dipped into to Emily Dickinson because there's something about her that every now and then I just find it both elegant and and stark and, and very engaging. Um, but I am looking forward to doing more, reading more murder mysteries coming up, but that'll be in the future. But 
Well, you got a lot of pe people excited about your detective novel that you flagged us off to that you're going to write. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's some pressure now. I, I really, you know, I really have to write it. But Finola, before you, you answer that question, I just wanted to thank you so much on, on both behalf of the institution, but also personally. You've always been such an incredible support of, of us as an institution, engaging with us, and I've been so inspired by you. So I, I didn't want to, uh, to pass the baton over to you and hear your literature reading uh, until I did that really genuine heartfelt thanks thank you i'm gonna miss helen you know the obvious is that you know i think there are so few of us women i will say in these spaces so i just want to you know this is going to sound like a mutual admiration society but actually those of us who sit in these somewhat challenging spaces that are very gendered spaces too and um, know each other and i've just admired helen's tenacity and her just the work she has done in advancing and um, not just like extraordinary doctrinal and policy work at the icrc but actually talking about gender which for a woman is really hard to do in some yes. of the spaces that we are in i think it's really true but we know where you live <laughs> yes um i would say read so i am you know, I'm also a huge poetry reader, reader and, and so currently on my bedside I have a compilation of Seamus Heaney's 100 Best Poems. Seamus Heaney is one of my favorite poets. Wonderful. And like Helen, I find that um, there's something about the nature of the work we do, which is very exhausting emotionally and, and mentally, that your capacity to do a lot. So there's something about poetry that allows you just um, the capacity to dip in and out and and also gain great courage from what you read because I think, um, yeah, I think we all struggle with the scale of the challenges that our workplaces bring to us and the sense that you're always struggling. And it's a little bit like the Sisyphean challenge. You're always pushing a big rock up a mountain and actually often watching it roll down once you've got to the top. So poetry is solace in those spaces. I love that you have that in common um, and, and with other women that I know as well. What a healthy and lovely way to recharge our batteries is just going into prose uh, as an art form. And, and thanks for sharing that. And I'm going to pile on this uh, admiration group as well uh, and just thank both of you. It's um, the role of the podcast host, I've noticed, to really play it cool, but I just can't do it. I'm so excited to have been able to speak with both of you today. It's really, truly an honor. Um, I've been following your work for so long, uh, both of you. And uh, I just want to thank you today for, for your energy and for dipping into you know, your very vast uh, library of expertise and diving into this one issue that I know is very important to both of you and to me as well, uh, and for the reasons that we listed today. So thank you so much for, for joining us today. Uh, do you have any last points that you'd like to share before we sign off? I think if we started, you wouldn't get a stopping. So I think it's a good point to draw the line with some, some poetry and uh, some mutual admiration and that we've got a long road ahead. <laughs> that sounds great. Okay, thank you very much and uh, safe travels over the pond to Geneva, Vanula and uh, Helen. Very best of luck in the, in the final days with us. You will be sorely missed, but we'll see each other, I'm sure, for a verre here or there before you're off. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lizzie. Thanks, Manola. Thank you much. Thanks, everyone. Thank you both.
If you enjoyed this episode of Humanity in War, be sure to check out the ICRC's Humanitarian Law and Policy blog at blogs.icrc.org slash lawandpolicy, a library of posts, all with audio reads on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify.